0: If you closed your Bible, would you open it again to 1 Kings chapter 18 as we give thought to verses 17 through 24. Beginning in 1956 and running for 31 seasons and then being placed into further syndication, there was a TV program entitled To Tell the truth. Each of the episodes had four panelists and three contestants. And uh, one of the contestants uh, had an unusual uh, story to tell. Something about him could be a politician, um, an astronaut, a ball player, uh, all sorts of individuals were pressed into service. Only one had that unusual occupation uh, or experience, while the two others were imposters. They could lie, but the one who uh, was the uh, one everyone was looking for had to tell the truth. At the end of the program, after the panelists had guessed who was the, the real person, then the moderator said at the very end, Will the real, and fill in the blank there, astronaut or whatever it was, politician, please stand up. Then there was all this moving of the chairs. You may remember if you ever saw the program and everybody was trying to throw everybody off. And finally, uh, the, the real one stood up. Well, we have a passage that kind of echoes that spirit, at least, in that as... Elijah confronts Ahab. In short, if it were a TV program, he would say, will the real God please stand up? Only one is real. The other is an imposter. And Elijah himself is is somewhat prepared for this in the sense that his experience with the Lord God had been kind of a learning experience. Um, There is a kind of of learning curve with, with faith, and Elijah has passed through that. He's been confronted with the worst of offenses, irreverence, idolatry, public calamity, as well as iniquity. He's been confronted with the holiness of God. He's seen its reality. He's learned obedience in the context of perplexing situations. He's learned dependence upon the Lord as the brook dried up and as the child died and came back to life. He learned something of what it was like to reflect resilience, living on slender provisions as ravens fed him and depending upon the widow's uh, small portion. He's also learned patience because he's had nothing to do for three years except the things that we've already mentioned. It was his role to wait and to wait for God to determine the right time to act. And God has now determined that time. And Elijah has all of this experience with him and behind him and before him. And he is ready as well to confront Ahab and Ahab's God. Dale Ralph Davis said, that this confrontation or this trial was absolutely necessary. And he puts it this way. So before it is safe for the Lord to send rain, Baal must be discredited clearly, publicly, obviously, decisively, in living color, and on national prime time. Hence the extreme measures. After Baal is exposed as a non-God, no one with a clear head should think the rain comes from him. Hence, there will be a God contest in Israel. And so, again, the question, will the real God please stand up? And again, Elijah has been prepared for all of this. In a sense, um, uh, Ahab has been prepared for it as well with all of the deprivation that he and the nation that he rules has had to go through. And so now we're ready for this confrontation between the two gods, the real one and the fake one. And so who is the real God actually dominates this whole section and actually beyond in the verses that follow as well. Well, I think we can look at the text, the verses that are before us, verses 17 through uh, 24, that we can look at these verses under three headings or to raise three questions and then seek to answer them. First of all, in verses 15 to 18, we may raise the question, who is to blame? And that's exactly how Ahab approaches this whole context. This conflict raises the question in the mind of Ahab, Elijah, aren't you really the one to blame? He re- refers to him as, as a troubler in Israel. This is all your fault. This is all of your doing because of what you have said and what you've done and all of the rest. The calamity is your fault. The calamity is your problem. And you brought this upon us. There's no mention at this point of Jehovah or of the Lord himself it's implied of course but all of this is really your fault if you hadn't said what you said if you hadn't tried to do what you've done this would never have come upon us he refers to him as a troubler in Israel the calamity is all your fault now kind of touches a nerve does it not as it relates to human nature Because blame shifting is a part, a natural part, of life in the world in which we live. Something happens, and it's always somebody else's fault. Fill in the blank. We can think of our our own lives and our own experiences as well. And in addition to that, there's a, a spiritual edge to all of this as well. Because often believers are the ones are blamed. They're blamed for holding the positions that they hold or that we hold. We're blamed for being exclusive with um, uh, the, the nature and character of, of the gospel and, and what we believe. And ministers are sometimes told that they just can't do what they're doing. They can't preach that. They can't believe that. They can't encourage other people To do it as well. In fact, in Amos chapter 7, Amos is told that he cannot preach the message that he's preaching um, in the vicinity of the king and the king's sanctuary. In Acts chapter 16, the apostles are accused of turning the whole world upside down. And Jesus mentioned in Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount there, and the Beatitudes, that uh, they would be hated for um, what they believed and for standing with Christ. And so this is all Elijah's fault. You're the troubler in Israel because of your faith, because of what you believe, because of the message that you have proclaimed to the very king himself. You can't, do that. It's interesting that Christians in one of the early epistles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, that the um, Christians in Thessalonica um, are, are referred to as those who have turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Believer's must make up their mind. Believers must be determined. Believers can't halt between two opinions, and we'll come to that in just a moment. One writer has said the cause of the drought was not the menace of I- Elijah, but the apost- apostasy of Balaam. And notice it's in the plural. We think of Balaam as just as as a god, an idol, but there were Balaams. That is, this this idol was. Was reproduced and was to be found uh, all over uh, the place. And so it was the apostasy of the Baleem. It was time that the fatal controversy should be decided. There must be an appeal to the people that can no longer halt between two opinions. So, who is to blame? Elijah you're to blame but the reality is Elijah's not to blame at all as we'll see in just a moment and uh, the response of the people so who is to blame well it's a very real conflict but it's not Elijah's fault secondly in verses 19 through 21 what is the claim The, the, the discovery of the Real God is conclusive. And the nature of the true God is disturbing. And so a choice needs to be made. And in a sense, Elijah sets the scene so that there could be an intelligent choice. An intelligent choice to reject Baal and reject Ahab. And to accept Jehovah. And so there's a choice. And Elijah makes his appeal and he sets the stage in verses 19 through 21 with the two bullocks and and, and setting up the stage for, for a sacrifice. And in verse 19, It's interesting that in verse 19 that, um, you know, it's not verse 19, it's verse 21. Notice the last part. After Elijah came near unto all the people, how long will you go limping between the two sides? If God be God, follow him. Or if Jehovah be God, and if Baal, then follow him. And notice, and the people answered him, not a word. Now, we really don't know uh, what they had in mind. Most have suggested that they were sort of cowering under uh, Elijah's um, uh, message. It was, was marked by cowardice. Um, some have suggested that what they really preferred and what they were hoping for was a, was a God that they could domesticate, a God that they could tame instead of the one true God. Now, what was the attraction of, of, of Baal? You know, what, what is the claim? Why, why would anyone claim that an idol would be a god, especially when there's ho- this whole history of, of the Lord God, the whole history of Jehovah with Israel? Well, there are several reasons, I think, which make Baal a very real appeal to the people. And if you think carefully, if you're following along, as I'm sure you are, you'll see some parallels with our own culture today and the rejection of the God of the Bible for the gods of our own age. And so Baal had an apology, that is, an apologetic, a defense. And the people would have been unwilling to abandon him, hence the reference in verse 19 of saying absolutely nothing at all. Several things. Well, first of all, it had royal sanction. It had political authority. It had the authority of the political leaders on its side. And if you were interested at all in climbing the ladder of success in some way in the culture and in an environment, it would be in your best interest not to follow Elijah and his God, but to follow the God of the political scheme of the day. And So here was a faith that had royal sanction. Secondly, it was a faith that had a social tradition. It had historic approval. It was a faith that was in step with the time. It was culturally acceptable and promoted. It was a popular faith. In fact, it had been around for quite a while. (coughs) It didn't just suddenly appear, but we read of it as early as Judges chapter 2. Baalism was no recent innovation. It had culture and it had history and it had politics on its side. Thirdly, it also had an emotional attraction. Baal was the god of weather. And imagine that you're a farmer, and there were many farmers, and it was an agricultural economy, at least to some degree, and you certainly would want the god of weather on your side. It was also the god of fertility, not only in terms of, of crops and the number of animals, But the whole world system uh, operated, especially agriculturally, operated on the basis of this God. It also had sensual fascination and enticement. As Dale Ralph Davis writes in his book, Baal allowed you to serve him with your glands. In other words, it was a very wicked And unrighteous faith, even as it related to what temple worship looked like. And so, Elijah sets up this contest. And he sets it up in Mount Carmel. He sets it up with um, all of the prophets of Baal. And the prophets of Asherah that is Jezebel's favorite and there's only one prophet of the true God and that was Elijah himself and in that sense then he was the only believer now we'll come back to this uh, even next time But notice that for Elijah, geography is no hindrance. Mount Carmel was the center of Baal worship. So geography was no hindrance. In fact, Davis writes, Elijah may have specified Mount Carmel for a reason. Carmel juts out into the Mediterranean near modern Haifa. In Egyptian records from the second millennium BC, Mount Carmel is called Holy Head, suggesting it was a sanctuary. In the annals of the Assyrian king Shalmaneser III, Mount Carmel appears as the mountain of Baal of the promontory. One might simply say Baal's bluff, that is, a bluff, a hill. Geography is no hindrance, environment is no interference, numbers are of no consequence, and unbelief is of no relevance with regard to the true God. He's either the true God or he's not. Someone has written, what after all did Baal theology claim about its premier deity? Baal was the storm and fertility god who bestowed upon man and soil the blessings of fruitfulness. He sent forth lightning, fire, and rain. He gave grain, oil, and wine. He could revive the dead, heal the sick, and grant the blessings of progeny. What is more relevant to the life of any Canaanite farmer anxious over his wheat crop and cattle shed. When Baal was in top form, the world was pregnant with life. Here was a faith that suitably scratched where people itched. And Baal must be discredited. So who is to blame? Elijah's not to blame at all. What is the claim? Well, the claim is... is rather great um, in the context that is claimed to Baal's reality and strength. Well, there's a third question and it stretches from verse 18 to 24. In all of this, who's to blame? What is the claim? The claim is extremely strong. But thirdly, then, where is the shame? Who is going to be discredited? And it's rather clear because we know the end of the story and we're not there yet and we won't be there tonight with the two sacrifices and all of the rest. But where is the shame? The shame is extensive. The nature of the true God is demanding. And this crime of claiming so much for Baal is really criminal and will bring with it destruction. So where is the shame in the claim of those who gave some loyalty to Baal? Well, there's shame, first of all, in their vacillation. They vacillated back and forth, and Elijah accuses them of that, and it's quite possible that there was a certain element of syncretism here, in that at times when Baal seemed to be in the ascendancy, then they would be followers of Baal. There are other times when it would appear as if Jehovah was in the ascendancy, and so there was a kind of blending of of these two faiths, and Elijah sort of attacks that, Elijah references that when he says, if Baal is true, then follow him. If Jehovah is true, then follow him. But both can't be true. And that's the point uh, that we're leading up to. This syncretism, this vacillation, this one day this and another day that can't be tolerated where there's a true God, a real God, and a false God. Secondly, there is shame in their violation of God's law. Verse 18, Elijah attacks that. Who is the troubler in Israel? It's you, Elijah. And Elijah says, no, it's, 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 it's not me. Look at what it is that you have done. And He says, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house in that ye have forsaken the commandments of Jehovah, and you have followed, um, and thou hast followed the Baalim. So there's shame in their vacillation, there's shame in their violation of God's law. And there is shame when God comes to be vindicated. When God Himself, Jehovah, will be. Validated. He's the God who rains down fire, something that was claimed about Baal, but something he could not perform. Jehovah will prove himself to be true, and he will do so by fire. And he had always done it by fire. There is fire. In God's revelation. You remember when God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. And where does he do that? He does it at the burning bush. And there's a bush that burns and it's not consumed. And Moses draws near because he sees this fire and it's the fire of divine revelation. Secondly, there's fire in God's supervision. God led the children of Israel through the wilderness by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And they were drawn along and God directed them. So there's fire in God's revelation. There's fire in God's supervision. There's fire in God's regulation. At Mount Sinai, the mountain shook and fire came down. And it was an indication that God was present and was present by way of supreme holiness. Fourthly, there's fire in God's salvation in the Levitical offering in Leviticus chapter nine and verse 24, and the bullock was laid on the altar and the other and so forth. fire came down and devoured the sacrifice. Acceptance with God. Acceptance. God's acceptance of the offering. Was signaled by fire from above. And there is fire finally in God's condemnation. Of. The wicked. And hell is a place. Of. Fire. Roger Ellsworth says in. His little thin volume, Elijah Standing for God, the Banner of Truth publication, says the crying need of the hour is for Christians to stop thinking there is some light in the world's darkness and some darkness in God's light. See where he's going, what he's saying? That there's, there's kind of a halfway place. And We live in a world in which is filled with uh, Baalim, Um, and they say one thing, and and we have the Bible, and we have the Lord, and we have His salvation, and and somehow we can live in both worlds and maybe kind of bring them together. He says, the crying need of the hour is for Christians to stop thinking there is some light in the world's darkness and some darkness in God's light. Christians cannot be fence-sitters in a world that cries out for direction and guidance. Jesus himself addresses the matter of vacillation in no uncertain terms when he says, and then he cites Matthew 6 24, you cannot serve two masters. You can't serve both God and mammon. A.W. Pink writes, they were not fully decided which to follow. They dreaded Jehovah, and therefore they would not totally abandon Him. They desired to curry favor with the king and the queen, and so felt they must embrace the religion of the state. Their conscience forbade them to do the former. Their fear of man persuaded them to do the latter. But in neither were they heartily engaged. Thus, Elijah upbraided them upbraided them with their inconstancy and fickleness. Pink goes on to say, religions which are diametrically opposed cannot be both right. One must be wrong, and as soon as the true is discovered, the false must be cast to the winds. If the Christ of Scripture be the true Savior, then surrender to Him. If the Christ of modern Christendom then follow him. One of the most startling books of the early 20th century and the one which laid these principles out in no uncertain terms was J. Gresham Machen's book Christianity and Liberalism. It's a classic still available. You can find it and you can read it. It's a classic. And Machen makes this statement. And you remember that at that time, liberalism was growing. And uh, it was was taking over the churches. It didn't appear in the 1920s. It had appeared earlier. But it was just taking the world by storm. And it eventually destroyed the Presbyterian Church uh, USA And that's why we have so many splinter groups now. But Machen made this and It bears repetition and it bears emphasis that he said Christianity and liberalism, that is liberal Christianity or modernistic Christianity, are not variations of the same thing. They're not two different ways of looking at the same faith. And here's his point. They're two different religions. And so you have the very thing that you have here at Mount Carmel with Baal and Ahab, the religion of the state, the religion of the culture, the religion of that appeals to so many. It scratches where you itches, and plus it allows you to live immorally as immorally as you want, and even say that you're spiritual in doing so. It's a different religion. And so modernism was a different religion. And we see that here, and we'll see more of that in the next sermon as the test unfolds. Perhaps the biggest lesson then to flow from this text is that truth is troublesome. Truth will give you heartburn. Truth will bring difficulty in your relationships in many ways. Reality means something. Something's either true or it's not true. Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through him. And so truth is troublesome and commitments have consequences. Where we stand, where we align ourselves, where we end up, will have consequences for us certainly in the life to come, but also in this life. Remember what Jesus himself said is that God will not accept a divided heart. You cannot serve two masters. To put it differently, I suppose, in the context of this particular passage and the appeal of Baal religion is that God cannot be tamed. God cannot be tamed. He is who He is and He requires what He requires. He gives what He promises to give and He requires what He demands and He cannot Be tamed. So, will the real God please stand up? That's what this passage is all about. Will the real God please stand up? And my friends, he has. And we know who he is because of the scriptures and certainly because of the work of our Savior the Lord Jesus Christ whose work was eminently public may God help us to know how to stand as Elijah did and as he calls upon the people called upon the people of his day to do so as well let us pray father in heaven we do pray that uh, we may not play the the blame game and uh, blame others, but know what real repentance is. And at the same time, to know what it is that our God has done and is presently doing and promises to do. We believe that truth is what it is. We confess that truth. We pray that you will help us to understand that truth has consequences and that we are called upon to live lives that are marked by loyalty to the one true God of heaven and earth. Be with us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.